This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me remotely from somewhere out there in cyberspace, we'll find out where Travel and Sam is today, is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam, you're not back-porching it today. I am not back-porching it. The summer heat's creeping up too quickly. So <laughs> The microphone was getting drenched. <laughs> <laughs> so you have snuck into the office, and you're actually you're in our regular studio, right? Yeah, I'm in the 700 house in our regular studio. It's right. kind of eerie talking with no one else around me. I imagine it would be a little weird, especially surrounded by microphones. But So Sam's yeah. in the studio, and I'm in my home office. We're continuing our conversation about the resurrection, and uh, what, uh, what we thought we'd focus on this week is some of the evidences of the resurrection. And I know that when we start talking about evidences for the resurrection, there are some people who their initial reaction, uh, Sam, is just going to be, I don't need to be, conv-. you know, it's, it should be something emotional, like you feel the truth of it and everything. And they, and, and there is something to that. There's a sense in which there's a spiritual, you know, the Lord's spirit communicates with our spirit about the truth of things. I, I understand what they're talking about there. We, mm-hmm. we feel it. We sense these certain things. However, it's also true to say that we can look at history, we can look at things that happened immediately following the resurrection, and be able to establish with some degree of certainty that these things would not have happened had there not been an event like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think people are, are naturally going to have an emotional investment in this conversation, because the reality is, is if you take the resurrection away, every human being on the planet knows instinctively that their entire life and everything that they've worked toward and all the relationships that they have, all of it is going to be swallowed up by the grave. Um, So if you deny the resurrection, if you deny the hope that there's something beyond this life, you're kind of resigned to saying that everything that I'm living for right now is ultimately going to be swallowed by the grave and all of it's made meaningless and the larger scheme of things. So yeah, everybody is going to have an emotional investment in this idea that our God, our Savior, has defeated the grave. So there's no doubt there's an emotional investment. But what what I want to talk about today is that there's you don't have to check your brain at the door. Like there's a lot of very rational, logical evidence that leads you to believe that the resurrection must have taken place. Now, I know that there's going to be some folks that uh, kind of divide evidence up into different piles. Like they'll talk about, you know, some sort of forensic evidence. Um, And, and, you know, there's folks over the years that talk about things like, did we find the burial cloth of Jesus Christ, the Shroud of Turin and that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And they're looking for DNA evidence or, I mean, I don't even know all of what. But because that's never really been my thing. I felt like after 2,000 years, there's probably not a lot of things that the CSI crowd could find uh, if, they, if they went back there. Um, but mm-hmm. what we're going to be looking at more is historical evidence. Right. So we're going to be looking at this, this episode today is um, what happened to the people that were living at the time of the resurrection? What was the impact 
that this event had. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you look at the consequences of what came after the resurrection and you're tracing back. There had to have been a cause that caused so much about that the world at the time to change radically. And it's the resurrection. Everybody pens it back to the resurrection. I suppose the easy thing is to start with what happened in the lives of Jesus' followers, because mm-hmm. those are the people that would be uh, affected by it most immediately. I mean, they had, they had suffered what we would call a crushing defeat. You know, if, it, if, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then their movement, their order, their belief system had just come to an end. So mm-hmm. um, for, for, the, for his followers that weren't necessarily sure that he was going to rise from the dead or they didn't understand exactly what he was talking about, they mm-hmm. were in the grip of fear and, uh, you know, they, were, they had gone into like hiding. Uh, they figured they were next or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so... If we look at the even the, the the day of and the day the immediate days after the resurrection, what kind of things did we see in the lives of his followers? Well, in the immediate aftermath, we see them scatter. We see them in hiding. Um, it's not until the women bring news of the the empty tomb that you see some boldness beginning, and you see the apostles running to the tomb, risking being arrested, risking being killed. Uh, but then after that. You have a group of people that, without exception, you know, kind of scattered in fear, that all of a sudden become extraordinarily bold. And when you read the early chapters in the book of Acts, all of a sudden the Peter that you were getting familiar with in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, who seems, you know, like somebody who talks a big game but always messes up and runs away and doesn't live up to his his word. All of a sudden when you get to the book of Acts, man, he's this courageous guy. He's going up against the, the religious leaders and he's not afraid of death and he's thrown in prison and you know what? He he doesn't stop. He's so bold. And you see that universally with all of the apostles. Um, and church tradition goes back and we look. I mean, if you were to go and look at what the gospel, what the hope of the resurrection did to his followers, uh, the first martyr in the church is Stephen, and he's stoned to death. And even as he knows he's about to die, he preaches a sermon. He's pointing to the resurrection right up until you know he feels the stones pummeling him to death you you go through the 12 apostles and all of them except john are giving their lives for this truth even judas who kills himself right you have to stop and ask yourself okay why does judas commit suicide in this narrative unless he knew that he was on the wrong side of things peter is going to be arrested, taken to Rome, and when he is going to be crucified, he says, I'm not worthy to die in a manner that my Lord died. And they say, okay, and they crucify him upside down. Um, If you look at so many of our state flags or the flags of of Britain, you'll see the St. Andrew's Cross. We call it the St. Andrew's Cross for a reason. Well, the apostle Andrew, Peter's brother, was crucified to death on a diagonal cross because he refused to walk away from his faith. James is put to death by the sword. You can read that in Acts 12. John survives and is exiled on Patmos, but he had, he's only exiled after he survives you know, various tortures. Philip is scourged and crucified. Thomas is going to be speared to death in India. There's still a church in India called Mar Thoma to this day. 
Matthew is speared to death. Bartholomew is beaten and hanged in India. James the Less is beaten to death with Fuller's Club. Simon the Zealot is crucified in Britain. Uh, St. Jude or Thaddeus is crucified. Matthias, who's going to replace Judas, was stoned and beheaded. You look at the Apostle Paul, he's going to be beheaded by Nero. You look at the Gospel authors, Mark has dragged to pieces in Alexandria, dragged behind animals to pieces. Luke is hanged on an olive tree in Greece. So all of these people that are close, really close to the resurrection, run off and they die. They're willing to give their lives for something that they knew either for certain happened or they knew for certain was a lie. There's no middle ground. That's true. And I think that's the most important thing to remember here is that um, there's no possibility that his followers were mistaken. Yeah, <laughs> there really isn't. Either he rose from the dead or they knew that they were lying about that. There's just no possibility that they were still hoping he'd risen from the dead. They he yeah. either did or he didn't. And they knew. And they stand alone. They're different than other martyrs. So like if I ran off and I martyred, you would say, you know, he he died for something he believed in, that he believed and hoped was true. If you look at, you know, a lot of people will be like, well, there's, you know, there's Muslim martyrs who give their lives for the faith. But what I want you to understand, what makes this different, a Muslim who, you know, dies in jihad or whatever, is giving his life for something that he believes and hopes to be true. Peter is giving his life for something he has seen with his own two eyes, felt with his hands, and knows to be true, or either he knows 100% that it's a lie. There's no middle ground of, oh, I hope I believe this to be true. They know for certain whether it's real or whether it's a lie, and without exception, unanimously down the line, Every one of them says, you can put me to death. I am not walking away from this truth. Any one of them could have escaped their fate simply by saying, okay, okay, okay. He didn't. We, we stole the body. Correct. Any one of them could have avoided what happened, and yet none of them did that. So yeah. this idea that, that not even one of his followers would... You know, would say that the, would deny the resurrection. Mm-hmm. That kind of unanimity, just you're just not going to find people that are all that crazy in the same way. Yeah, and 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 the specific issue that was that they were being crucified and tortured for was the resurrection. You look to Acts twenty four verse twenty one when Paul is going on trial before Felix before he's you know sent to Rome. He, he says, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. So they're looking at the resurrection because what does that mean? In the Roman world, that means that there is a higher power, there's a greater kingdom, there's a better king than Caesar, and all of the circumstances they can throw at you do not have the last word. It doesn't have the ultimate power because now you serve a king that is greater than death. You serve a king who, though he was rich, he became poor to take you, the poor, and to make you rich. It, it, th- it throws this new kingdom, this new liberty to the, to the lowest, the least, the lost, the left out, and it elevates them. And Caesar could do nothing about it. I mean, the most that he could do is say, I'm going to kill you. And they were like, oh, great, to live as Christ, to die as gain, yeah. you know. And it was unstoppable. They were more than conquerors because they had absolute confidence in the resurrection, and none of them would walk away from it. At that time, the people, the 
you know, the religious leaders and just the people in general, they all kind of had their own theory about Jesus. There were some that called him teacher, that, mm-hmm. you know, that he was a rabbi and a great teacher. He obviously had a command of the, of the scriptures. There were others who called him a sorcerer. They, you know, he, nobody denied he the cast fact. out spirits by the power of Beelzebub. Like sure. that's, yeah. But there was nobody who denied that Jesus did amazing things they yeah. they disagreed over why or how he did them by what power he did them but they were all comfortable with the fact that this was a magic man who knew a lot about the bible you know it's like they were okay with that but when you said he came back from the dead that makes him god that's the point you can't get past you can't say well this was his greatest magic trick no no if he came back from the dead he is declared to be who he said he was the son of god yeah. I mean, that's just that's that's why the resurrection was the key issue, because it was the one thing. The only way to explain that is he was God. God yeah. brought God came back from the dead. The, what drove the Romans crazy wasn't just that Jesus. There was a claim that Jesus rose from the dead. It was the claim that in conquering death. He extended that victory to everybody who followed after him. And so, like, you, there's a Roman playwright whose name is Lucian, and you know, he's not a fan of Christianity. He mocks it pretty mercilessly. But this is what he says in the, in the centuries right after Jesus, like in those early, early days. He says, The Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. So there's no argument there. But listen to what he says. He says, These misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time. And so the frustration with the Romans is usually they could put people in line. They could oppress people. They could put them into subjection by threatening, we'll take your life. And he's saying these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they're immortal for all time. So it's not just that Jesus conquered the grave, but that in Christ we have conquered the grave, and now death has no claim on us. It's, it's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's just singing about the resurrection in that chapter, such a powerful chapter, you know, he can mock death. You know, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Where, grave, where is your victory? Like, it has no hold on me, so threaten me all you want. Vic, death has no claim on me anymore. And so Rome had lost its weapon. This idea that that each of us as individuals had this connection with God, that, that God would, would relate to us, that was something that whether you, I mean, you know, whether you were Roman or whether you were Jewish, the fact was you didn't deal directly with God. You had these layers of people mm-hmm. who dealt with God on your behalf or the gods on your behalf. You know, there were, there were people that ran these temples, you know, and that's who you dealt with. This idea mm-hmm. that, that, that God would be personally invested in you that created a different that was also very different about those first christians is that they didn't believe that there was anything between them and god and that was also something that the romans i don't think could get their heads around was this idea that every single one of them felt like they knew god personally well because they did (laughs) And and the jews too you know this idea that people were claiming the power of god's resurrection that were total sinners, Gentiles, people who had, in their opinion, who had absolutely no right to be claiming such things. And that they, when they heard it, they were like, oh, not that person. No way. 
uh, and it infuriated them. But that was the whole point of the cross was Jesus came, you know, Jesus, you know, he didn't come into this world because we're so wonderful. He came into this world because we were desperately sick, dead in our sins and trespasses. And when he goes to the cross, he extends his righteousness to those who aren't worthy of God. You know, the great tragedy in, in what's going on with these early religious leaders is they don't recognize how far short they fall. But all the people that are coming after Jesus do. They recognize, you know, they hold a higher view of God than the religious leaders, which is ironic. You know, they're saying, I'll never measure up. God is too great. God is too holy. And the religious leaders think that they're protecting God. But essentially what they're saying is, I'm worthy of God. You know, right. God God is attainable. No, he's not. He is so far above us, but he loves us so much that he would go to a cross and give us his righteousness and then conquer sin on our behalf, pay the penalty for our sin. And then when he's raised from the dead, he conquers death and extends that power into his people. And so the idea that this could be so easily accessed just by faith. You know, you, you don't have to be the cleanest, the best, the brightest, the most beautiful. It's not about that. It's about coming with humility and saying to the Lord, I'm broken and I need you. I recognize that I don't have any solution that can overcome the grave and I need you. Yeah, rather famously, the mindset of the religious leaders of that time, Jesus was talking to him where he talked about the Pharisee praying and then and then the tax collector or the sinner that came. The Pharisee said, I thank you that I am not like these other men as he's talking to God. The other fellow just beat his breast and said, be merciful to me, a sinner. And mm-hmm. and Jesus said, you know, I'll tell you what, he was the one that walked away forgiven. You know, the, the mindset of the religious leaders of that time was very much that uh, they believed that they were worthy of the positions that they held. And that same passage, he says this line that he'll say multiple times throughout his ministry, and it's he's quoting the Old Testament when he says, "Those who exalt themselves will be humbled." You know that's a, that's a that's a pretty strong warning to those who can who can tend towards self righteousness or dress themselves up in religiosity and feel worthy of God. He says, "Those who exalt themselves will be humbled," but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Mm. And so, you know, the, the the entrance into all Christian graces is humility. It's coming before him and recognizing, I have no right to demand anything of you. You're God, and I've failed in a million different ways. And it's exactly then that God overwhelms you with his, with his grace and kindness and delights in doing it and lifts you up to share in his glory. And he's just, but he begins with humility, like the, the Christian walk, is rooted in that sense of humility. Grace begins with humility, yes. Yeah. That passage is in Luke 18, and it's right after that that he's, t- he's talking about little children, and he says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In other words, like you've got to be like a little kid. A little kid doesn't question whether or not they need their parents. <laughs> you're totally reliant. When you're a little kid, you know you have to go to your parents for every need, to get dressed, to go to go places, to, to get meals, to do all that stuff. And, and Jesus is saying, don't think you're self-sufficient. Stop. Be like one of these little kids that has the humility to recognize their dependency upon your father. That is wisdom. Mm. 
So now if I'm listening to this and I'm somebody who has a healthy dose of skepticism, maybe Mm -hmm. maybe I'm not a believer or maybe I am and I'm just skeptical about some of the things that I'm hearing here. I'm thinking, well, Pastor Sam, you know, it's his followers. Of course his followers are going to be all fired up about this stuff. But it's not just his followers. What kinds of things did we see in that months and years following the resurrection from outside of that Christian camp that give us some sign of change. So so there's a lot of different perspectives and angles you can come at to the to see a resurrection. One of my very favorites because most of the time that's the response you're going to get. Yeah, 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 it was their followers and of course they're going to write this stuff. One of my very favorite arguments is that is the writings that start happening that are totally secular, that are that are people that are opposed to Jesus. You you already start seeing the world unraveling after the resurrection. Something's going on, and so just to set that up, long before Paul starts writing letters, long before the gospel authors pen their gospels, right? You already have things that are going on in the world where Christianity is spreading like wildfire. And this is, this is how that happens. You know, Jesus is crucified. It's no accident that he's crucified during Passover. And we know from various other accounts that when the Passover came, you'd have Jews from every region all over the place that would come to Jerusalem to go to the temple for the celebration of Passover. The city would swell. You know, People would be camped on the hillsides and in the surrounding villages, but hundreds of thousands of people would come to Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate Passover. So what did they see? So we've got these firsthand witnesses that are crowding in to the city of Jerusalem who see all they, they see Jesus cleansing the temple. They see the arguments of Jesus in the temple. The word of this is going all over the place. The, in the scriptures, they're talking about how he's turning everything upside down. The whole world has gone after him. So everybody's witnessing this, right? Then you get to the crucifixion. You know, the crowds are coming in for the morning prayers. Tons of people are seeing Jesus. They see him scourged. They see him crucified. They they're, they recognize this is a big, big ordeal. And when the resurrection happens, guess what? You know, the, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 a pretty massive claim. He says there were 500 people that Jesus appeared to on the morning of the crucifixion, and you can go ask them about it. So, so imagine this. You've got hundreds of thousands of people that crowd into Jerusalem. They see the crucifixion. Many of them are still lingering around after the feast is done. On the morning of the resurrection, many of them see them. And where do they go? They go home. And when they go home, they take the news that this guy was crucified, that lots of people believe that he was the Messiah, that he rose from the dead, that his tomb was empty. It caused a great stir. The Romans couldn't produce a body. And everybody's talking about whether or not he's the genuine Messiah. So they go back home. They go to all these different places where there are synagogues all over the ancient world, which let's pause right there. Why are there synagogues all over the ancient world? Well, 600 years before Jesus came into this world as a man, Nebuchadnezzar had conquered the Jewish people, destroyed Jerusalem, torn down Solomon's temple, and he sent all the Jews into exile over all of the world. And so they went out and they built tab- they built synagogues, excuse me, and they began teaching all the prophecies that were pointing to a coming Messiah, somebody that was going to bring a kingdom of, of justice and peace and all these descriptions of what he was going to be like and look like. 
And so all the regions of the world are just saturated in these prophecies because there's huge Jewish populations in the major cities around the world, Rome, Ephesus, Alexandria, into Arabia and Persia, tons of Jewish populations all over the place. The Sibylline oracles talked about how every land and every sea was full of thee, talking about the Jewish people. And so now all these people go back home and they're like, the scriptures have been fulfilled. And you see the churches start growing in these cities long before Paul goes on his missionary journeys and way before the gospel authors um, begin to write. So like when you, when you do read some of Paul's letters, which he writes between 48 AD and up to his death, what is he saying? He's saying when he writes to the Colossians that their faith is all over the world, and the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. This is before the first gospel before the first gospels penned. He praises the Romans because their faith was quote being reported all over the world. He prayed, he rejoiced that the Thessalonians, their faith in God, has gone forth everywhere. Now, how in the world is that possible? You know, he's writing to the Thessalonians. That's one of his very first letters around 50 AD. We're talking two decades away from the resurrection. No gospels have been penned. There's no organized church yet. And yet this movement of Christians is exploding, and we have evidence of that. So then the question becomes, how did this church start blossoming in all of these cities before there was any organized movement apart from eyewitnesses that then returned back home with a, you'll never believe what I saw during Passover. And then a huge crowd goes back for Pentecost 50 days after the Passover, and that's where Peter is. So it's, you know, Jesus has just ascended. And Peter then is, if you're reading the book of Acts, the first chapters, Peter gives this sermon. And he's like, you guys saw it with your own eyes. And, and 3,000 people are baptized. Guess what? All those people go back home. And it's so, so all these feasts that are drawing Jews from all over the world to Jerusalem and then back to all over the world served as the very first missionaries to spread the gospel. And you see evidence of that. Because it's not just Paul that's addressing the fact that the church is exploding all over the world. We have evidence from even Emperor Claudius that he's concerned about this as well. And religious beliefs at that time and the different cultures that followed their own gods, it was, it was a very sort of national thing. If you were if you were a Roman, you, you mm-hmm. followed the Roman gods. Greek, you followed the Greek gods. If you were from Israel, you were part of the people of Jehovah, of the Lord, of the Bible, of the Old Testament, and it, it was everybody sort of identified very strongly with their own individual uh, national religion. Yeah, well, city gods, yeah, they had, every city had their own favorite so far more than we think about today you know we when we think about it in our modern culture we don't realize just exactly how much of their uh, identity as a as people like you say even as a city were tied into the gods that they followed mm-hmm. and so this idea that the church would take hold back then that this would expand beyond the boundaries was itself a remarkable thing it's something <laughs> that's very anti-culture for that time for this to happen Completely. So you go anywhere in the Roman world of that time, and it wasn't a big deal to embrace a new god. I mean, but but it was like, you know, you could have a dozen of them on your shelf. You just, you know, here's another one. Great. I'll put number 13 right there. Right. (laughs) The difference is when Christianity began to spread, it wasn't, hey, here's one more god for you. It was, if you're going 
to be a part of our community. If you're going to profess faith in Christ, you've got to get rid of all the other dozen. That was wildly controversial throughout the Roman world. To say that you could no longer worship Jupiter and you could no longer worship Roma or Artemis or Aphrodite or whoever, that Jesus alone claims all authority over your life and requires 100% allegiance and you need to get rid of all other gods, you were hated right out of the gates. And they wrote about how much they hated the Christians. The Lord always claimed to be the, you know, there's just one God there. And he's like, you have no other gods in front of me. And when he, when that was given as part of the law, he, you know, it was like gods in a dismissive way. It's like there are there. It's not that you won't have them. It's that there are none before me. And this idea (laughs) that they, that these other gods, it's not just that he was the greatest God, Sam, because they could understand that. Oh, you're just saying your God's greater than my God. Great. We'll have a God fight and we'll see. Yeah. Your God is saying, my God doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, you know? Exactly. So that exactly. was really irritating to them because it, they, were, they were okay to argue about which God was on top of the 12 on the shelf. But as you say, the whole shelf is empty. That was the astonishing thing to them. Yeah. And there's, you know, Jesus repeatedly throughout the Gospels, you know, took the position of being God, you know, when he refers to himself in that sense so often throughout the Gospels, including like taking, the, having the authority to forgive sin um, by commanding nature, by doing all of these miracles that he's he's done. He is so thoroughly proven that he is the one who controls creation. Well, who must that be? It's the creator. And, and one of the things that I find fascinating is, you know, you go to these Roman cities in the ancient world, you go to the Roman authors of that time, they hate Jesus, but they do not, like you said earlier, they do not deny that he did the miraculous. You, you've got many, many sources of that time that refer to him as a sorcerer, a magician, um, that was fooling people. They couldn't explain away the fact that he was multiplying bread, which they refer to in the Roman writings. But they say, oh, it's just magic. Raising people from the dead, oh, it's just a magic trick. Um, and so they can't explain it away, but they recognize if it's true, he must be God. So they they write, he's just a magician. He must be doing these by sorcery. There were like laws and rules mm-hmm. that were dispensed after that that also offer us some pretty strong pointers toward the resurrection. Yeah, so... I, these are some things where I, I can't definitively say um, this is the re- this points to the this absolutely, is absolutely okay. the resurrection. But I want you so you put on your 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 legitimate logical skeptical hat and try to explain these from any other perspective. Jesus, when he is crucified, he's crucified under the authority of Pontius Pilate, who's serving the emperor Tiberius. After Tiberius comes Caligula, and after Caligula comes an emperor named Claudius. He reigns from 41, so one decade after Jesus' death, Claudius comes to power, and he's going to reign until 54 AD. And he does a number of things. So all this is way before the Gospels are penned, sure. and, and mostly before Paul has even gotten out of bed to start his writing. You know, yeah. So this is before then. And one of the things you find that I find really interesting If you're reading the book of Acts, which is telling a historical perspective, we're told it says, so after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And you read the book of Acts, and you go, well, that's interesting. All of a sudden, Claudius, which the gospel names, or the book of Acts names here, 
says that all of the Jews had to leave Rome. Acts doesn't get into it, but the Roman historian Suetonius does. He says, since the Jews of Rome, these are in his, he's a historian, this is his writing. He says, since the Jews of Rome were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus or Christ, he expelled them from the city. So let's, let's explain what's going on. So this is before Paul has gotten there, before anybody's gotten there. Um, he's never stepped foot in Rome. None of the apostles have been to Rome. So all those early witnesses that were there at the Passover or were there at the Pentecost that have come back home, the church is now spread through the synagogue. So these riots are happening in the synagogues before the apostles have even gotten there. And so he's saying, because the, the Christians, the Christian Jews, are now saying, we have found the Messiah. It's Jesus Christ. He's God in the flesh. He's re- you know, atoned for our sins. He's raised from the dead. And all of the Jews who refuse and reject Jesus as the Messiah are going, absolutely not. This is blasphemy. And they're enraged at the claim that God would become a man. And what does it do? It's creating these fights, these riots, you know, in the city of Rome. And finally, Claudius goes, I'm done with all of you, all Jews, get out. And I'm going to turn this city around if you guys can't get along. <laughs> that's right. You want me to pull over and exactly. take my belt off? Yes. But anyway, like that's what's going on here. So the, the synagogue in Rome is being turned upside down to the point where Claudius says, get out, get out. I've had enough. What else does Claudius do? Well, there's a you can Google this. It's really a pretty pretty interesting thing. He Claudius issues an edict. It's called the Nazareth inscription. You can Google that and see it. There's pictures of it, translations of it. But he sends it. The reason why it's called the Nazareth inscription is the emperor of the most powerful empire in the history of the world is facing some kind of a crisis, some kind of a upheaval in his empire that makes him stop and issue an edict that goes to a podunk town in Galilee. Like, it's one of the most non-consequential regions of the Roman Empire, and it's one of the most you know, non-consequential town in this non-consequential territory of the Roman Empire. Can anything good come out of Galilee? <laughs> yeah, Nazareth, yeah. Yes. And, and so what is this Nazareth inscription about? Well, on the inscription, I'll I'll read a portion of it. It says, Edict of Caesar, if anyone who has in any manner extracted those who have been buried or has moved with wicked intent those who have been buried to other places, committing a crime against them, or has moved sepulcher, tomb, sealing stones against such a person, I wish that violator to suffer capital punishment. Now, that's been dated to the early side of his reign. So remember, he's 41 to 54 AD before Paul's writing much before the Gospels, and there's something going on that's causing such upheaval for him that he sends an edict to Nazareth. Gee, what comes out of Nazareth? It's Jesus of Nazareth that's threatening anybody who has removed bodies from tombs. Well, where do we get that from? In the Gospel, what does it say that the priests say to the Roman guards they'll do if rumor happens that somebody steals a body? We'll, we'll tell them that his disciples came and stole the body and we'll, we'll cover you, right? So now you get Caesar who falls right into that. He's sending edicts saying, I want anyone who steals bodies killed. Can you think of any other circumstance that would make sense for Claudius to send an edict to Nazareth 
to talk about bodies being removed from tombs unless there was an empty tomb that was causing him a lot of grief. Yeah. No, I couldn't. <laughs> I mean, you know, so why would lenses. he care? Why would he care otherwise what they were doing in Nazareth? Yeah. Like, yeah. Who, who, why would he give two flips about a tomb that's been disturbed in that region? Yeah. You know, and so, so he does some other things. He issues an imperial edict that bans, it's a travel ban. Remember, so when Paul goes on his missionary journeys, he's going through Syrian ports, right? So he gets in a ship and he goes on his missionary journeys. Well, that's the way lots of those Jews traveled. They would go to these Syrian ports and they would hop in a boat and they would go all over the Roman Empire. So Claudius issues a travel ban and it's specific. He will not allow Palestinians, so Jews from that region, Jerusalem, Palestine, all that area, he will not allow Palestinian Jews, which would include all of the apostles, from entering Alexandria, which was a massive Jewish city in, in North Africa and Egypt. They weren't allowed to travel there anymore because just like these synagogues were in total upheaval in the city of Rome, Claudius is writing that Jews from the ports of Palestine, and he says this, are fomenting a general plague which infests the whole world. Now, what is he talking about? These Palestinian Jews. So there's no problem with the Jews that are in Rome. There's no problems with the Jews in you know, Asia Minor, Turkey. It's these Jews that are coming out of the Jerusalem-Palestine area that are going to the rest of the world that are, he says, fomenting a general plague which infests the whole world. Well, what is that plague? If you go back to the trial of Paul, he's accused of that exact same language, of being a plague to the world. So you hear these echoes that are going on here. And so you have Emperor Claudius that's trying to clamp down on the spread of the gospel. When we do these, it's not uncommon that uh, I suddenly have a question answered that I've always wondered about. And it's like one of those, oh, by the way, here's something that I didn't think about you know and in this case i'd read that story in acts where uh paul where he met up with aquila and priscilla and found out that or that they had been cast out of rome because of the riots and i found myself always wondering who were the jews rioting against in rome (laughs) because i was thinking first of all what would they have to be rioting about? It's not like, I understand them maybe rioting back home because they're under Roman occupation. But when they're in Rome, they're in Rome, you know? So what are they rioting about? And not only that, but why would you riot in Rome against the Romans? That's a good way to get your head cut off, you know? It's like, so I've always wondered, what were they rioting about? And it never occurred to me until you just said it now that the riots were totally within the Jewish communities, that they were, that mm-hmm. the rioting was between the people who had come back saying, we've seen the Messiah, he's Absolutely. risen from the dead, and those people that said, now I must beat you with this chair. You know, it's like, so suddenly the wars break out in the synagogues over the claims of the Jews that were returning from Passover. Yeah. And that's something that, until I mean, it makes perfect sense, but until just now, it, it never occurred to me. I mean, it, this must have turned synagogues everywhere into powder kegs <laughs> yeah it's so, like let's drop a palestinian jew in the middle of this and watch what happens you know jesus is the messiah everyone take cover yes yeah, it's, i mean it's it's but you follow the book of acts what's being described the steps that claudius is taking that we see in the secular evidence 
I mean, read the book of Acts. This is happening in every single one of these cities. And when he says that it's a, a plague that infests the whole world, these riots are a plague that infests the whole world. Well, let, let me walk you through, brace yourself. Let's walk through some of Paul's travels because as he's on his missionary journeys, every single city that he goes to, where's, what's the first place that he wants to step foot in? He wants to go to the synagogue. Why? Because they understand the prophecies. He can go in there and say, all right, you know all this Old Testament, these prophecies that you've been studying? We found him. He's come. I've seen him with my own eyes. And so he goes to Damascus. And I'm going to give you some direct quotes from, I just want you to get the overwhelming feel that when Claudius says this is a general plague that infests the whole world, here we go. And Damascus, quote, the Jews plot to kill him. That's chapter 9. And Jerusalem, they sought to kill him. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. In Pisidian Antioch, they attacked him and drove him out. That's chapter 13. In Iconium, they sought to stone him. In Lystra, they actually did stone him and <laughs> thought he was dead, left him for dead. Paul gets up, absolutely, because he's seen the Lord, and he knows that every breath he has needs to be spent telling other people about this, and death is not scaring him. So he goes to Philippi, where he's beaten with rods and jailed. Then he goes to Thessalonica, and a violent mob drives him out. Then he goes to Berea, and crowds are stirred up against him. He goes to Athens, where they mock him over the resurrection at the Areopagus. He goes to Corinth, and they oppose and revile him. He goes to Ephesus, and he's, he's after three years ministering there, they riot against the teaching of the resurrection. And he has to go back to Jerusalem, where they try him, for the resurrection, and he's shipped to Rome. So you, you walk through the book of Acts, and the exact thing that Claudius is talking about, get out of here, get out of Rome. I don't want you going to Alexandria, I you know Nazareth. If anybody's removing bodies, I want them put to death. You see what he was trying to quell. <laughs> you know, yeah. A simple walk through the, the ministry of Paul shows you every single synagogue was upside down. And, and debate and rioting over whether or not Jesus was the real Messiah. And lots of people who had seen him with their own eyes refused to back down, and the church was exploding all over the world. Mm. Who, who was it? There was one of the religious leaders that when they were talking about what are we going to do with, uh, with Jesus mm-hmm. um, or th- said, look, don't do anything because if it's not if this is not from God, then it's just going to fade out on its own. But if it is from God, there's nothing that you can do to stop it. I'm, I'm remembering that. Gamaliel. Gamaliel, okay. This is Gamaliel. So he's talking, I believe he's talking to the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel's the guy, he was the rabbi or the, the high, I don't, he wasn't a priest. I don't know what he was, what his title was. But he was, he was the guy who trained Paul. Okay. So he was considered one of the most brilliant people of that time. And so it's no accident that when Luke is talking about Gamaliel, he throws his name out there because he was extremely respected for his wisdom. When Paul talks about how he was trained by Gamaliel, it's saying he had one of the best educations out there. And so Gamaliel, like you said, is encouraging. Hey, if this guy's a fake messiah, let it go. It'll die of its own stupidity. You know, nobody's going to believe it. But if if he really is, we're going to find that we're fighting against God. So Claudius, uh, you know, we he he threw the Jews out of Rome, and he did this uh, Nazarene or or Nazareth uh, command about don't take things from the graves, or else we're going to kill you too. After mm-hmm. you know, where did it go from there? After Claudius, wasn't it was Nero, right? 
So yeah, I mean, the, the church just continues to grow in its intensity. And so you have Nero who comes along, who in the early church, a lot of people believed that he was the Antichrist because he was so viscerally opposed to Christianity. In fact, he's going to be the one who puts Peter upside down on a cross, and he'll be the one who beheads uh, Paul or orders their their execution. So he's a nice guy, in other words. He's just wonderful. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he's he's one of the when you when you talk about tyrants, really oppressive, evil tyrants. He's always somebody that everybody lifts up throughout history. He's considered one uh, just a really terrible leader. Um, <clears throat> so you get to sixty four A.D. So let's do our timeline. Claudius is reigned from from forty one to fifty four. Nero comes in, and he's going to reign. Um, and he hates the Christians. He he continues trying to stamp them out. And you get to this really uh, big moment in Nero's reign when Rome catches fire. Now, this is recorded in 64 AD. Nobody disputes this. A tremendous portion of the city of Rome is set on fire. And rumor begins to build that Nero did this so that he could rebuild those sections, so that he could kind of make them his own. And everybody starts blaming Nero for the loss of these homes and life and everything else. And we're told by the historians, a couple of historians, Suetonius back then says that Nero blamed the Christians, right? He says, punishment by Nero, this is out of his history, punishment by Nero was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. Now, this that term mischievous superstition seems to be the formal title that, that Rome had given to the resurrection because you see it a lot when they're talking about what the Christians believe. And so it's talking about resurrection. There's another one who is actually a senator from Rome. His name's Tacitus. And I mean, if you if you were to take the Gospels and you lost all of the Gospels, so much of what we know... Uh, could be pieced together by some of these historians. So listen to Tacitus, what he says about Jesus and the spread of Christianity, um, just in his own words. And so he's considered one of the most reliable historians for Roman history, um, was very thorough. And so he writes this, he says, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. Yes, they were hated. They were called Christians by the populace. Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So right there, you've got tons of details from the Gospels that are being affirmed by Rome. So, you know, the kooks that go around saying, we don't even know if Jesus existed, that's just garbage. Here you have a senator and one of the most reliable historians putting it during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of Pontius Pilate. He goes on. And he uses that expression again. He says, a most mischievous superstition, talking about the resurrection, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So stop for a moment. In 64 AD, he's saying it had really gained popularity, it got suppressed for a while, and now it was breaking out again. So in timeline... If, if liberal scholarship says that the Gospel of Mark wasn't written until 65 AD, which I think it was written earlier, but if liberal scholarship's right, then the Gospels hadn't even been penned yet. And already, Christianity's turning the world upside down. And now we're on the second wave of this evangelistic thing, according to Tacitus. He says, you know, 
it was checked for the moment and again broke out. So this is the second time that a wave of resurrection evangelism is going on. And then he says, accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, so they've got you know people telling on each other, we're rounding up everybody that's a confessing Christian. But he says this, this is like, how do you explain this? He says an immense multitude was convicted. How is there an immense multitude of Christians in the city of Rome that are so substantial that when Nero's looking to blame somebody, they're substantial enough that the that he throws the blame on them. We're only three decades away from the crucifixion. The Gospels haven't been circulated yet. How in the world are there all these Christians unless they were sourced by eyewitness testimonies and these early evangelists that had nothing to do with the apostles? He says, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. And so there's historians that write about how Nero took Christians and crucified them in his gardens and set them on fire to serve as torches so that everybody could see how beautiful his gardens were during the evening. And that's how he killed many of these Christians. And here's the question again. Those emperors allowed people to go free if they denounced the resurrection. And yet Tacitus is saying an immense multitude was convicted and willingly went to their deaths, some of the most horrendous deaths imaginable. And so all, you know, I'm I'm naturally, I've got some skepticism in me. Sure. But for the life of me, I can't come up with a situation or a scenario that makes sense of so many people willing to lay down the ultimate and lose their fear of death and give their lives unless they had great confidence in the truth of it. And they're a lot closer to the crucifixion and the resurrection, and many of them had to have been eyewitnesses or known eyewitnesses, and yet what you don't find is anyone saying, this is all bunk, this never happened. You know, I'm a collector of, of random trivia that uh, isn't useful for anything other than these kinds of conversations. But uh, one of the things I happen to know about is the I, I find the history of words interesting. And because mm-hmm. um, when we say, for example, that the Romans refer to it as a mischievous superstition, I know what the initial reaction that people are going to have when they hear that a mischievous superstition. Oh, the Romans liked the Jews. They looked at them <laughs> as being playful kittens like a kitten is mischievous, you know, knocks them things off the counter but we love the kitten so we don't kill the kitten you know and that's the that's actually not the origin of the word mischievous it didn't take on that playful meaning until the late 17th century Hmm. prior to that if something was referred to as mischievous it was referring to an unfortunate and that it would come to an unfortunate and calamitous end. If it was like a very, very negative term. If the Romans were, were saying that these Jews were in the grip of this mischievous superstition, what they were saying basically is that this was going to end badly. Yeah. None of these things really make any sense if you take them out of the context of the resurrection actually yeah, they happened. Don't. You know? And and the you know, one of the other things is is the world was at the, the world of power at that time was absolutely unified in their hatred 
of the gospel. So the Jewish religious leaders, the the significant majority of the Sanhedrin, the power brokers, the Herod, you know, the the governors, the the emperor, everybody was looking to squelch this. Everybody that had power and influence, and the ability to to circulate edicts and laws and everything else, absolutely wanted to squash this. And yet, the more they tried to squash it, the more it spread like crazy. Um, I, I, there was a letter that was sent by a guy named, he's called Pliny the Elder, and he, he sent a letter to the Emperor Trajan. This is a hundred years after the ministry of Jesus. And by that point, he's like, you want me to kill all these people? Are you kidding me? Like, I don't think you understand how far it spread. It's every race, every gender, every class, every rank. And he says, if you give the order that you want me to kill these people, I don't think you understand how bad it's going to be. This thing has spread everywhere. Um, and and then the emperor kind of stands down off of that, that order a little bit. But the, why am I saying this? This had so much momentum that it was unstoppable. And the only way that I can imagine something having that much momentum, that it became an unstoppable force, is if people knew for sure and were assured of this hope and death itself, torture, anything that you could throw against it would not keep me from pressing on and pressing in to my faith in Jesus. You know, I want to go back to something that you just said there, uh, and maybe this is a good thought for us to end on, but you said that uh, the church thrived under that kind of, of persecution and, and pressure, uh, that it was a time when the church grew explosively. And, I, you know, we've even talked about this, Sam. We've said that the, the thing, the greatest danger to the modern church is comfort, that if we all become very comfortable uh, and, you know, we find ourselves with the upper hand in society where we don't feel like there's reasons why you'd want to be a member of a church other than you're a follower of Jesus. Well, you join the church because, you know, it's a social thing and, you know, it looks good. It puts you in with the right people in the business world and, you know, you want to that sort of thing. There's 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 other reasons to be involved with it other than just I'm a follower of Jesus and you know, I'm going to be that way even if it kills me. Um, and at that time, there were no fakers <laughs> mm-hmm. in the church back then. There were th- this was not a step that they undertook lightly. They the kind of pressure and persecution they were under is the kind that strips away all the people that aren't there because they're all in. Those people were all in. There was nothing that was going to back them off from it because they knew that Jesus had returned from the dead. Uh, that was Amen. the that was the bottom line. They were all in and and. There's times when I when I think, you know, when we see things that seem to be turning against maybe the church in the world today. Uh, and again, you've brought this up. You've talked about places in the world where the church is growing the fastest. It's growing in areas where it's under the heaviest persecution. The heaviest hand is pressing down on it. And that's where more people are being added to the church than anywhere else. Because when the world around them looks at those people they see the authenticity. They see mm-hmm. these people would, would are literally going to walk into the fire. They're going to walk into the lion's den. They're going to walk into death itself. There's something here. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what we can take from the people of that time after the resurrection is that there was something there. 
Yeah, you see that the in the church after a while, I mean they were they were facing all of this persecution and after a while they began to see that this persecution was actually growing their numbers. Mm-hmm. There there's a guy named Tertullian who writes in the early 200s who was one of the early church fathers and he writes to the Romans about their abuse and he says, "Your tortures accomplish nothing, though each is more refined than the last." Rather, they are an enticement to our religion. We become more every time we are hewn down by you. The blood of Christians is seed for the church. And what he was saying there was, yeah, you can take our life. You can, you can, you can mow us down. You can, you can kill us. But when you do that and when streams of people are lining up saying that Christ is more precious to me than life itself— what you're doing is putting out this message to everyone who's watching, who's, who sees life as this vain project, that everything's going to be taken at the grave. What's the point? What's the purpose? You know, And they see that in Christ, there is not only something of value that's worth laying down your life, but a hope, the only hope that's offered in this world that the grave has been defeated. This great enemy, the grave, which is going to swallow up all of your work and all of your reputation and all of your your relationships. It's just going to swallow everything about you. One has come who will defeat it, and he's worth your entire allegiance. And the, the, the Roman world, they couldn't stop it. All their threats, all their oppression, they could not stop the church from just exploding through these people that were starved for hope. But in that first century, they didn't have that perspective. When they laid down their life, you know, they, they knew that they were giving their life to one who would grant their life beyond. But they hadn't begun to see that in this oppression, the church would grow. But sure enough, in those first three centuries until Christianity became mainline in the Roman world, this oppression, as Tertullian said, became seed for the church. Everybody was looking, saying, Man, what they have is really precious. They they have purpose in their life. They have beauty in their life. They have hope in their life. And it was all sourced by the fact that Jesus had raised from the dead. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word. Um, I think it's a good word when we're examining the evidences of the resurrection. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us and that this has been a profitable conversation for you, that it's encouraged you in your own faith as you look back at uh, at Easter and at the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we invite you to uh, communicate with us if this uh, if this podcast has prompted any questions or comments that you'd like to make. Send us an email. Our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's uh, out of water all run together because I can't be bothered with punctuation or spaces at riovistachurch.com. And you can also catch up on all the back episodes of our podcast by going to our webpage at riovistachurch.com slash out of water or by finding us where we are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. We'll be back next week and we'll see you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.